Happy Mother's Day, moms. This is your day, right? And all you men have all these great lunch plans for them, right? Right? And all these great flowers. Wait, kids, you have all these wonderful things planned for your parents at home, right? Of course. See, I'm looking at my kids. They're here with me today. That's okay. We just want to honor you. We want to bless you today. I tell you, it is such an honor and a privilege to be able to speak to you all this morning and especially on what is a wonderful day. Amen? How many of you have been here for the last two installments of our new series called Rock and the Rolls? R-O-L-E-S. A few of you. Good. So I've got some newbies in the room. That works. All right. I get the wonderful honor today of taking you all on a little journey into an area where angels fear to tread. You know where that is? Marriage. (laughs) So we're going to talk a little bit today about gender roles in marriage and talk about what the Bible says. But to set this all up for you so you kind of have an idea where we're going to go and what we're going to do today, I have a little video clip for you. Is that okay? All right. Go ahead, Mike. The man is the head, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any way she wants. <laughs> oh, now that should get an amen, right? A little deja vu for some of you, maybe? Yeah? Yes, Maria. We know that she gets her way in the end if you've ever seen the movie. It's a great movie. So why is it important, do you think, to talk about marriage roles in the church? It's a foundational thing, and it's supposed to be, you know, complementary to the marriage that we have with Christ. Is that correct? For those of you who have been around for a while or maybe who have been taught that, marriage is an important deal. It's an important thing. But you might be interested in learning a few interesting statistics that I want to share with you. How many of you are familiar with the Barma group, a research group? Anybody who was here first service, you are now familiar with it. So raise your hands nice and high so people don't think I'm like out in left field. Okay, thanks. Anyway, the Barma group is a research group that specifically polls all kinds of people to make sure that the church or to measure the church's relevance to the culture of the times. And it also does the reverse and measures how the culture of the times is affecting the church. So it's an unbiased sampling. They actually go out and they sample non-religious people and religious people. They uh, sample all kinds of different religions, all kinds of different denominations, and all kinds of things, trying to get a good picture so the church can help stay relevant. Make sense? So they did a poll in 2000, the year 2000, which is pre-9-11, but it's kind of important where they polled people in the church percentages of people who have been divorced within the church. And it's interesting the things that they found. Now, they will do this nonpartisan. So they, anybody who considers, them a, in, uh, considers themselves part of any kind of religious affiliation, include them, including agnostics and atheists. So in this poll, the highest rate of divorces are listed in the Jewish religion among the Jews. At 30%. Second, born-again Christians at 27%. Other Christians, yes, there are other Christians who don't call themselves born-again. 24%. And atheists and agnostics have the lowest divorce rate at 21%. Now, they took that and they divided it up just a little bit more, and they looked at it by denomination. So non-denominational churches have the highest at 34%. Now, how many of you know we're a non-denominational church? Right? Most evangelicals belong to a non-denominational church. They actually included the Assembly of God Church in with this same figure. Baptists at 29%, mainline Protestants, which would be you know, Presbyterians, Methodists at um, 25%, Mormons at 24%, and Catholics and Lutherans tied at 21%. Now they broke it down even further, and they took that chunk of non-denominational churches at 34%, and they specifically pulled out evangelical churches, evangelical believers. And they asked him, 
Why is, why do you think the reason divorce is so high among evangelical churches? And they gave us two reasons, and these are the reasons they gave. That they have a strong adherence to gender roles or traditional marriage. Second one, even more surprising, evangelical churches lack emotional, practical, and life-changing support for marriage and family. So the views are among that those younger among those polls is that the evangelical church is too traditional with their marriage and their gender roles and that they don't provide support emotionally to the families in a lot of different ways. And what happens when someone in an evangelical church goes through a divorce? How is that person treated a lot of times? Not so great. So it's kind of a to, you know, a toss up between the two. Either you get, you know, don't get the love and the support and the practical ministry that you need in your marriage, or you say to heck with the marriage, and you get divorced, and then you get criticized for getting divorced. It's kind of a catch-22. So this is an important thing to be looking at in the church. Because we're called to be two things. We're called to be salt, and we're called to be light. Which means we should be affecting our culture for the positive, right? Instead of the culture affecting us for the negative. Marriage on a whole now, they've done a little bit of a, an upgrade, so to speak. In 2007, they went back, they measured it again, and you'd be surprised. Divorce rates have gone up in the church. And now, pretty un- well, universally, are up around the 35 percentile. And even in the atheists and the agnostic group, it has also reached into the 30th, into the 30s percentile. So it's not getting better, gang. It's getting worse. Now, out of all of those that they measured, half of them were young people and half of those who attended church, so that age group between 18 and 29, said that they perceived Christianity, not Christians, Christianity, all right, to be judgmental, hypocritical, and too political. And one-third of those said it was old-fashioned and out of touch with the family. So it's kind of a big deal, right? If we've been teaching certain things in our church for however many years, and the divorce rate in the church is still going up, then something's wrong, right? And what's even more interesting, you might say, okay, people who are getting married is going down. That's true. Marriage rates right now are the lowest they've been since 1872. And you'll say, well, that's because people are choosing to live together before they get married. So we're having less marriages, right? Because people are living together and not getting married. Actually, the group of people that have the highest divorce rate are those who have lived with people before they got married. Out of that research, they found that 45% of the people who live together before they get married break up before they get married. And of the 55 that still stay together out of that, 50%, well, 45% get divorced before they reach the eight-and-a-half-year marriage mark. So you're only looking at about a 15% success rate there. So, no, that's not the answer either. So if the church isn't the answer, and we don't have the answer, and living together in the world doesn't have the answer, what's the problem? So will you guys take a journey with me today? Yeah? And can we still be friends afterwards? Y'all promise to be my friend afterwards, because I may say some things that go completely different than anything you've ever heard before, and that's completely okay. I'll love you, you love me, we'll all go bowling together next Saturday, okay? Right? Because this isn't an issue of salvation. This is an issue of being salt and light in our culture to other people, so that they can be exposed to the good news that we know that is Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let me give you a couple of reactions. All right, you see these things come out, and of course there's people that get on their hobby horse, right? Always. So Dr. Tom Ellis, chairman of the Southern Baptist Convention, Council on the Family. You remember where Baptists were? They were up there pretty high, right? Said that a born-again Christian couples who marry in the church after having received premarital counseling and attend church regularly and pray together daily experience only one in 39,000 divorces. So one marriage out of 39,000 get divorced. So those statistics don't apply to them because you have to do one, two, three, four. And your marriage is going to work. 
Well, how many of you know, those of us in the evangelical churches have tried one, two, three, four, and our marriages still didn't work. The opposite opinion. Ron Barrier, spokesman for American Atheists, said, These findings confirm what I have been saying for these last five years. Since atheist ethics are of a higher caliber than religious morals, it stands to reason that our families would be dedicated more to each other than to some invisible monitor in the sky. With atheism, women and men are equally responsible for a healthy marriage. There is no room in atheist ethics for the type of submissive nonsense preached by Baptists and other Christians or Jewish groups. Atheists reject, and rightly so, the primitive patriarchal attitudes so prevalent in many religions with respect to marriage. Now, from 2000 to 2001, the atheists and the agnostics went from 21% to 33%. So don't think that's working for them either. Right? All right, so let's look and see what the Bible is doing. Now, how many of you know that Aaron talks a lot about this? If you've been with us for any, any period of time, you'll know. He say, he'll say that, the, that not all of the Bible is written to us, but all of the Bible is written for us. Which means there are things in the Bible that are absolute truths. Right? And there are things in the Bible that are relative statements that aren't written for us. They're to us to show us examples of what happened maybe 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. Okay? You can't apply the culture of that day and the language of that day to the culture of this day and the language of this day. They're, they're apples and oranges. Even just go across what they call the pond and a flat in England and a flat in America are different. Right? So there are absolute truths and there are relative truths. There's also something called a presupposition. Now, what a presupposition is, is to go into something and to suppose that it is absolute before taking a course of action or at the beginning of a conflict. So when I come in to speak to you, I don't sit here for 15 minutes and explain to you that there is a God. I presuppose that you guys already believe that, right? And I don't need to spend another 15 minutes telling you that there's Jesus and that he's the Savior because I presuppose you already know that. How many presuppositions do you think maybe we go into the marriage roles at because of what we've been taught or what culture has set as an example? And before we even start, we already have our minds made up. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, can I get an amen? All right. So how many of you have ever been to a marriage conference? Oh, you brave souls. How many of you have been to maybe more than one? All right. We've had some here. We've had some outside. Generally, and the ones that I've pretty much been to start with Genesis. Only they start with Genesis 3.16. So let's go there real quick. And, and it's up here too, so you, you don't need to open your Bibles. Genesis 3.16. Now this is after they already ate the fruit. Okay? This is after God already created, uh, uh, cursed, sorry, cursed the serpent. So he turns to the woman and he says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. I have four of mine here today. You were a pain. (laughs) Only on Mother's Day can I say that, right? Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The husband is the head and the woman is the neck. Right? He rules, he, right? Your desire is for him to turn the head, but he will rule over you. He is the head. So we start here, and then I've been to some marriage conferences, then where we even split off, and the women go over here, and some nice lady teaches us all about submission, and how we have to submit to our husbands, right? And then the men get split over here, and some brave soul comes over there and tells them this is how you're the head of your house and then we all go home and our marriages work great right (laughs) there's only one other time in the entire bible where this exact same phrase where it says your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you occurs in the bible one other place and it's exactly one chapter later and it's when cain God is talking to Cain when he says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. 
Sound familiar? What that means is there's going to be conflict. There's going to be problems. Sin's going to desire to lead you astray. And you're going to have to conflict with, with sin. Bang, 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 bang. Right? And I called my message today the Battle of the Sexes Peace Accord. How many of you know there's conflict when, even when you say the Battle of the Sexes? Right? And a peace accord literally means that you come together and you don't declare a winner or a loser. You just come together and make peace. There doesn't have to be a winner or a loser. So what God is saying is you have, by your choice, since you decided to live independently from me, have now brought conflict and division into your marriage. Your desire is going to be in the place of where your husband is and wants the things that he has, and your husband is going to feel like he has to dominate you. And so you've got conflict. So here we have started many of our marriage conferences where? At the point of conflict. And then what do we do? We split them up. This is your job, and this is your job. And so we're dealing with people coming from a point of conflict, and then we expect them to go home, and their marriages are going to work. Oh, there's conflict, all right. How many of you have ever gone away from the... And then the next day, you're supposed to submit. Hey, I'm the boss of you, you know, but I have my ways. You are the head, I am the neck. Do you see? So... That has pretty much been the pattern for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So evangelical Christianity Christianity comes along, and all of a sudden we start trying to get a hold of things. And so we take things like Galatians where it says, um, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, or male or female. In Christ. And we say, you know what, you're absolutely right. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to the things of God, God looks at us and he does not see male nor female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. He sees us all as one. But you know, Laurie, God is the God of order and God created man first and he took woman from man and he named her. God didn't name Eve. Adam did. So God has an order. Has any of you ever heard that one before? No? Really? So in salvation, we're all equal, but God created an order. And so they go back before the fall. So let's go back before the fall. Go up a little bit more. And to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Now I want you to notice the tenses that God uses here. Tenses, you guys understand tenses? There's singular, there's plural, singular is one. Plural is more than one, yes? Everybody awake? Okay. So God said, let us make a man in our image according to our likeness. Now, who's the us and the our? The Trinity, right? Presupposition. Okay, the Trinity. Let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them, plural. Then God blessed them, plural. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now the Hebrew word for Adam, or for man, there is Adam. But it's with a little a. Not a big A like we would say a name. And it literally means humankind, species, or a common sort. Not higher or lower. A common sort. Now we look at the Bible and we want to put everything in our nice little box and everything in line. But what he's talking about here is the six days of creation. So he's saying man was created in the sixth day. Man, humankind, species, male and female. Then we, in our minds, with our presuppositions, want to jump ahead to when God created the one man and the one woman and say it happened on a totally different day. When possibly it could have happened the same day. Day six. So if you look at Adam as a humankind, then who did the dominion go to? It went to both. We're in Christ. Christ's in us. Eve was in Adam. So who got the rule for dominion? Both man and woman. 
That's God's order. Amen? Now, the writer of Genesis used that same word until he created women, or woman, in Genesis 2.23. And then the man, Adam, little a, said, this is now bone of my, oh no, the man, I'm sorry, the man, Adam, big A, okay, said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man, man, little Adam, That is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, the Hebrew word for man there is ish, and the the female word is isha. It just means gender, female and male. Have any of you ever studied a foreign language? They've got feminine articles, they've got masculine articles, and they have neuter. Little Adam is neuter. Ish is masculine. Isha is female. Got it? Then that word one flesh in Hebrew actually means to be one whole person. Now, when we think of flesh, Westerners, what do we think of? Sex. So if you're becoming one flesh, we're thinking of that. Am I right? Come on. Right? Or we're thinking of our bodies. Right? Okay, that's flat in England and flat here. The Jewish person didn't think that way. The Jewish person thought... One of the flesh is being whole. One whole being. So the two shall become flesh means the ish and the isha are now Adam little a. Following? Everybody doing okay? Let me give you another, let me give you another example for that. Alright, if everything becomes one, how do you rank one? Can you rank one? What's your favorite one? Shelly, do you have a favorite one? One color? Do you? Yeah, you have a favorite color, right? But what are you comparing it to? Why is it your favorite? Because you have other colors that you're looking at that you compare it to. What if you only had one color? Could you rank it? No? Okay, so let's do a little thing here. What two colors make green? Come on, my artists. Yellow and blue, right? Two separate colors, right? There's blue and there's yellow. Now, as long as you have blue and yellow, can you rank them? Some of you might like blue better, right? Blue's masculine. Blue's color for boys. Blue's calming. Yellow's bright. Yellow's disturbing. No, I like yellow. Yellow's great in the kitchen. Okay, you see how we can get into these conversations, right? Now, what happens when you put the two together? You get green. Where did the blue go? Did it go into the yellow, or did the yellow go into the blue, or did they just come together? They come together and form one color. You can't see the blue anymore, and you can't see the yellow anymore. Unless it's yellowish green or bluish green, where one's a little bit more than the other. Might have a few of those marriages too, right? But true green is blue and yellow, and it's mixed. That's the picture of one. Now, what do you think Jesus had to say about this? Jesus never pointed out, not once, or referred to himself of his Jewishness or his maleness. Not ever. His self-proclamation of being the son of man was the son of little Adam, the son of humanity. So in Matthew 19, 3 and 4, when the Pharisees came to him and said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Because back then it was. He wanted, to create, he wanted to collect a second dowry. He could divorce his wife. He could have her killed and marry again. It was a money-making project. They were property. So they're trying to trap him. Now Jesus says, haven't you read that in the beginning? So where does he take them to? Does he take them back to Genesis 3? Or does he take them back to Genesis 1? Back to one, right? In the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become green, one flesh. So they are no longer two, yellow and blue, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Don't take them back to the fall where the separation happened. Take them back to the point of creation, which was God's original plan to have them be one. Can you see that? So that's what Jesus said. Oh, but Laurie, I know. I know, I know. 
But there's got to be order in the home, right? We've got to have order in the home. Because you bring the male together, you bring the female together, you know, the female acts kind of, you know, all emotional and, you know, gets all kind of teary-eyed and, you know, she just has her ways. And then the man, you know, we're the breadwinners, we're the ones that are supposed to do that. So when you have those kind of personalities coming together, you have to have order. Right? Come on, gang. Am I the only one that's heard this before? No? Good. You have to have order. So this is what the evangelical church is preaching. A lot of it. Not all of it, obviously. Okay? But a lot of it is preaching that you have to have order in the home. And they go to a lot of different passages. Okay? I'm not, I'm gonna only do one today, but there are a lot of them. There's 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 11, there's Colossians 3, there's Galatians 3, there's 1 Timothy, there, I mean there's a lot of them. So if you want to start with that presupposition that there has to be order in the home, you can put together a pretty strong argument for having that division for that head over the woman, okay, and make it come out right. But if your presupposition is wrong, guess what? It doesn't matter what your facts are, your answer is still wrong. That's why it's hard to win an argument with an atheist, because you start with a different presupposition. Make sense? So let's look at Ephesians 5. Are you all still with me? You guys doing? You're awful quiet. First service was a little bit louder. Are you guys doing okay? Do we need to stand up and move around? Are we still friends? All right. Just checking. Just checking. Okay. Ephesians 5. We're going to start in not the typical place. When I go to, when I've been to a marriage conference before, we always start with verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay. Paul... The translators have a horrible time with Paul because he, he, he constructs these huge run-on sentences where he starts at one and then 20, you know, 8, 20, 30 words later, he finally finishes his sentence with a period. So to make it easier for us to understand, they've put periods in the middle of some of those sentences where they weren't there before. Okay? And those of you who know grammar, oh my gosh, could you imagine trying to grammatically divide that sentence? So it actually starts in verse 15. Okay, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that's what we're trying to do here today, right? Understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one another in the fear of God. And we're all sitting on this high. Oh, isn't that wonderful? That's so pretty. That's a great verse. And then the very next thing he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Okay, now he's not breaking thought here. So there has something to do with the wives submit to the husband that has to do with the part of the sentence above it. Got it? For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Okay, now I already lost some people, but that's okay. We're not going to devote, we're not going to stick with that right now. Verse 25, husbands love your wives. So verse 22, wives submit to your husband. Verse 25, husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. And gave himself for her that they may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle. And it goes on and on and on until we get to verse 31. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And we just heard Jesus say that, right? So Paul is actually taking them back to the same place. Can you see that? They're going back to the same place in Genesis. Okay, but Laurie, what about all this other submissive stuff that's going on above that? Interesting that you asked that, right? Okay, guess what the primary action of this whole dissertation is? Submitting? Right? Because that's what I've been taught. No. The actual action of all of this is to be filled with the Spirit. That's the activating verb of the whole passage. So he says, do not be unwise, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Therefore, submit to each other. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to your wives. You know, church, submit to Christ. Christ gave his life for the church. He's talking about how to live being filled with the Spirit. 
It all has to do with being filled with spirit. But he's got to go in there with a relative truth because he's combating what Jackie had talked about, or no, Aaron talked about it when he gave his introduction to all this, something called the Roman Greco household code, which was the law of the land. And it was, it was the father to the wife, it was the father to the child, and it was slave or the father to the slave. And it talked about relationships and responsibilities. And guess who had none? The father, the man. It was all about how the wives were property. It was all about how the children were property. It was all about how the slaves were property. And that the man could do anything with, he, with them he wanted to. He could kill them. He could get rid of them. He could stone them. He could neglect them. He could, if he was married, never have conjugal relationships with his wife. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And the law would back him up. 100%. So, if Paul goes in and says... Not only wives submit to your husband. Why, why would he have to tell wives to do that? They were already required by law to do it. So he goes after the men. Men submit to your wives. Men love your wives. Men treat your wives like Jesus tra- treated the church. Men, 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 men. So he puts all these things on men. Now, if he wanted to really be obnoxious and say where we're talking about, you know, being, you know, being bossy, being the head then he could have said the word obey. Now, the word submit and the word obey are two totally different words. If he would have said head meant authority, are you following me? And obey was submit, it would have sounded like this. Wives, obey your husband for he is your authority. Who's the boss? Man. And wives, you know it, Right? Instead, he didn't say that. The problem was, is Christians were getting hold of all of this freedom, all of this religious freedom, and they were, women were starting to feel equal, but they didn't have the tools yet to handle all this stuff. So they are trying to start revolutions in their cities for their rights. They're starting to go out there and start demonstrations. They're starting to stir up a lot of trouble in the land, and the law was in favor of the man. So they're starting all these groups. Sounds a little familiar. Some of the isms that we have now going after their rights, trying to change by violence. So Paul's coming in and say, don't do that. Be filled with spirit. Live a life filled with the spirit where you each are submitting to each other. With a household code, you still have to follow by law. But men earn the wife's respect instead of demanding it now. Don't go after your children and aggravate them. Yes, children, you need to obey your parents. You still do. (laughs) Even when you're 30 years old, right, Car? Yeah, she said, yeah. But no, anyway, do do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what he had to do? So he went in and he sowed some seeds and went after that code so that it would break it all apart by saying that everybody had to be submissive to each other. So this is what he is saying in the Greek. Give your strength to your husband. Give your strength to your wife. And use it to elevate them to their rightful position in Christ. Give your strength to your husband. Give your strength to your wife. And use it to elevate them to their rightful position in Christ. Now this type of authority praises other and gives of themselves. Where the type of authority that demands to obey... Because I'm your boss, do it because I said so, that still doesn't apply to kids. I'm picking on my kids. I shouldn't do that. It's Mother's Day, right? I'm doing what I'm saying I shouldn't do, infuriate them, right? Anyway, um, what he is saying is, is take your strength and give it to your spouse to bring out what God has created in them, to elevate them, instead of worrying that they're going to surpass you. Their desire should be for you, so you have to rule over them. Instead, flip that around. Give your strength to them. How many of you in here that are married, when you look at your spouse and you say, they're completely different than me? Most of you. That's a pretty good sign God put you together. Just so you know, because then you have the strength where the other one is weak, and they have the strength where you are weak. And if you're not allowed to do that for each other, 
then what are the odds of your marriages working? So how are our marriages supposed to work? (laughs) I've been married 20 years. I'm still working on the answer to that one. (laughs) But what some of you may not know about me is I've also been divorced. And my first marriage, I was divorced. Well, I'm divorced from my first husband. And my older three kids, two of them, which are here right now, are from that marriage. And that was a disaster from the very get-go. And I went in thinking I had all the tools to be a good wife. You know, I had done 4-H. I had learned how to cook. I knew how to clean. My mom was very, you know, sure that us girls were very prepared to go into our marriages. But that was the marriages of the time. There weren't a lot of opportunities for women. So a woman's best avenue for success was a good marriage. And even Jackie showed how still today there are a lot of men out there that are earning more money than women, doing the exact same job. And if you're a woman of color, you're fighting it two ways. So it's still out there. So do we as a church want to continue that trend or do we want to be salt and light and leaven in that situation and get in there like Paul did and kind of work to turn that upside down if we're continuing to insist on specific things in the marriage that the scripture doesn't really back up then we will continue to widen and we'll lose our young kids because they won't want to have anything to do with it. Because a, man, a woman right now does not always need a man to survive. They can get a good education. And they are waiting until they're older to get married. Until they are financially more secure. So some of those things back there. So if we want to hold on to things, we need to make sure that they're scriptural. When God's main focus is that we be filled with the Spirit. And that we live together, mutually submitted to each other. And another little thing about that verse, let's look at it again just real quick, Mike, if we could. Ephesians, if you look at verse 17, he's tucked in another little seed that you'll miss if you don't look at it very well. He says, do not be unwise, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. Then he says, giving thanks always. For all thanks to God the Father, and he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. He mentions the Spirit, he mentions the Father, and he mentions the Son. He's giving an example of one. Wives, husbands submit to your wives, wives submit to your husbands, as Jesus submitted to the church. Can you see that? That's God's order. That's his plan. That's what he wants for us to do. Okay, Laura, you said all that. That's great. Okay, but I still have this marriage I'm dealing with, right? So what can we do? First of all, we abide in Christ. Anytime you get into that division, women go here, men go here, I'm the head, I'm the neck, I'm the boss, you submit, where we, we're, we're approaching everything from that place of division again. Right? I'm the breadwinner. I'm only the mom. I'm only the wife. It's all about identity. Right? And where we pull that from. We get our identity from Christ. We stay abiding in Christ. So, don't take your gender roles with you into your marriage. Instead, take your strengths and weaknesses. Because when you become one, you're taking two different personalities and you're making them one and then the church is telling you what that personality should look like. Am I right? But what if the woman has more strengths and leadership than the man? Does the woman have to be held back and the man elevated to something he's not gifted to because that's what God has called into order? 
because I've experienced it for 20 years. My husband is a wonderful guy. I've got his mom and his brother here with me today. And they'll tell you that he's got a lot of characteristics that are very, very good, but he is not, nor does he have the desire to be, nor is he equipped to be a leader in the church. That's not his gifting. And for the first seven years of our marriage, I tried to push him into that because I couldn't be a leader in the church unless he was lifted up above me. But that's not what he's called to do. I'm called to lead. Mike is very much more people sensitive. He's very in tune with body language. He can read people really, really well. He's very good at the one-on-one. He's very good relationally. He's very stable. He's very even. He's very fair. He's got a temper. So do I. That's not always good. (laughs) We compliment each other in a lot of ways. And if we learn, if we can learn to work with those areas, then we can be stronger in our marriage. So our marriage takes on a personality that's unique from everything else. Right? So we want to find out what is that personality and learn to work with that personality. So treat your marriage as one entity. It's two unique individuals coming together, making a unique marriage. And guess what? There are no perfect individuals, so there is no perfect marriage. And your marriage is only as strong as your next trial. Is that true? Those of you who've been married a long time? And let me tell you, there's nothing that'll try a marriage more than losing your child. And a lot of marriages don't. But we stood on the roof of that hospital and we made a commitment in a mutual agreement that it was not going to destroy our marriage. And there was a lot of stuff that happened, but it did not destroy our marriage. Because we mutually agreed. It wasn't me telling him. It wasn't him telling me. We mutually agreed. Few decisions are emergencies. Very few are emergencies. If it's an emergency, dial 911. Pretty much everything else in your marriage can wait. Whether you buy a car, whether you buy a house, whether you change jobs, whether you move someplace else. How you discipline the kids. You know that old adage, wait till your father gets home? Right? Oh, I tried that. Oh, yeah. That mostly because I want to be the bad guy. And I, I didn't want to be the bad guy, so let Mike come home and deal with the kids. And so poor Mike, he comes walking in after, you know, 12 hours at the prison, stressed to hear, guess what your kid did today? And I'm out the door. <laughs> and he's like, what? And then he's the bad guy. All right? I'll never forget, Carly got, I'm going to pick on Carly. She got in trouble one night really bad, really bad. And I was ready to tar, feather her, ground her till you'd still be grounded. I was done. I was taking away everything in life for her. I was totally done. I mean, whatever, I was going to shave her head, you know, I mean, I was done. (laughs) But Mike was really calm. And I'm like, what's the matter with you? I've been up all night. I'm scared to death. I'm worried. How could she do this to me? And Mike goes, she didn't do it to us. She did it to herself. So he says, we're going to wait and we're going to talk about this and we're not going to give her a punishment until we come into agreement about what we're going to do. It was horrible for her because she's sitting there on the couch, man, and she's like waiting for the, you know, me to get out the wooden spoon or whatever it was, you know. She was ready for that, and uh, we just sent her to bed. And we realized then that that was the best approach to disciplining our kids. Whenever we could, the wait till your father gets home wasn't so much so that I could ditch out the back door and then come in later with, I'm so sorry, honey, you know. But it was to take that time to go and process and come into agreement with what we're going to do. Now, we don't always do it perfectly because actually I'm the actor. I'm the one that acts really fast and he's the mellower one. You know, so that kind of brings in and there are times when he wasn't there. So, you know, but few decisions are emergencies. Okay, recognize when you're being manipulative. Recognize when you're being the neck. 
So specifically men, are you a disconnected head? Ask yourself this, does your wife have the freedom to say no to you about anything, anytime, anywhere? Does she have the freedom to say no? Without you resorting to guilt, shame, or dominance. And that means everything, guys. Do you insist on permission or strive for consensus? I know some guys who make their wives ask permission to go get a hundred, you know, a haircut because theirs only costs 20 and hers costs 120. Well, that's ridiculous. So they tell her, no, she can't go spend the money on doing it. Well, if the money's not there, that's one thing. But if you're just being a pill, I mean, come on. It takes a lot to make us look pretty. Sometimes. Let her do it. Got, women, you know, if your guy's got that glazed over look of the power tool in his eyes, you know, and it costs $200 because it's a DeWalt and not a hobby freight, you know, is that what it's called? Harbor Freight, thank you. See, what do I know? <laughs> Hobby Lobby, I don't go there either. <laughs> you know, if the money's there, let him go get it and then let him go out in the garage and play with it for a while. I believe me, my, car, my husband has a garage full of toys. Instead of getting your feelings hurt because he's not inside. Right? Guys, if you're insisting on that, you might be sending the message that your will and your needs are more important than hers. And you will sow seeds of resentment into your marriage. Absolutely. 100%. Because nobody likes to be told what to do. Right? And definitely on things that we say no about. Now, that doesn't mean you say no all the time. I mean, it could mean no and we're going to have a discussion about it. Okay, but that takes work. And you know what? Marriages take work. And when you lay down the flat no... You just said an end to cooperation in the marriage. Ladies, are you acting like the neck? Does your husband have the freedom to become who God has designed him to be without you placing expectations on him to be what you think he ought to be? Because if he could be more of a leader in the church, then I can be elevated too. Okay? So if you impose a loaded identity on him like being the priest of the home, what that implication or that presupposition, remember the definition, implies that you get your spiritual identity from him and not from Christ. Because if he's the priest of the home, then you go to the priest, right? You don't have to go to God. And he's in charge of meeting your needs. And he's in charge of supplying your supplication. And he's in charge of doing whatever. That's not his job. That really is not his job. Okay. Have you possibly put unfair expectations on your husband to be the breadwinner of the family? Maybe you have more education. Maybe you have more skills than he does. Maybe he's more of a manual labor type of guy, and maybe you're more of a sit-at-the-desk type person. There's probably more opportunity for you to earn more money than him. Just saying. You guys all still love me? Okay. Just checking. I felt something there for a minute. Um. Do you see your primary purpose, ladies? I'm talking to you. Do you see a primary purpose in life to be the wife of or the mother of? That is an old Greek custom, to be the wife of and the mother of, implying that you're gaining identity from your husband or your children. Those roles change. When you're a new mom, you have to take care of every need of your child. When they're 30 years old, not so much. That role changes. So if you're taking your identity, then what are you going to do to the child who's three years old? Are you still going to mother them like you did when they were an infant? If you do, you're going to have relational problems. It changes. Don't say anything. You might be trapped in the belief your identity or status comes from someone else and something else than Christ. I know I'm picking on you, right? She'll never come hear me teach again. Drew, should I pick on you? No, he said, okay. So obviously I don't have the perfect marriage, guys. I don't. And I don't have all the answers. All I can say is that the old model doesn't work. It just doesn't. If it's working for you in your marriage and you've been married a long time, praise the Lord. And I think that's great. And don't change a thing because I'm not here to mess up marriages today. I'm not. 
going back, I want, to be, I want us to be salt and light. I want us to be able to help people help themselves and help their marriage. I want to share the right message and not a message that puts people in bondage. I don't want to divide people. I want to unite people. The heart of God is to bring us all together into green. And that's, I think, what he really wants us to do. So the top three reasons for divorce are finances, sex, and child rearing. And the battle of the sexes, who's right, who's the boss, and who submits. If we take all those out, then our excuses become relational, and we really, truly have to learn to work together. Right? And I think that's God's original plan. Okie doke. Yeah, it's good stuff. I think it's good. So I just feel the Lord, you know, really saying that if you're experiencing any kind of guilt right now, or any kind of, man, I've been that man, or I've been that woman, and I don't know how to change, because that identity is so rooted in there, you know, we can minister to you. God can set that free. And it might take a while for you to discover who you are, but that's okay. Life's a journey, and we're patient. Just like coming together and trying to figure out those agreements in marriage, you know, you have to be patient. You have to work those things out. You have to work those things out with God, too. For those of you who maybe have gone through a divorce, hey, life happens. And sometimes you're just not with the person you're supposed to be with. And other times you just don't have the tools. And you should not be persecuted for that. And you should definitely not be persecuted in the church. You should be loved and embraced and encouraged. So we want to minister to you too. So be set free. Men, too many expectations on you. I feel some of your shoulders are awful heavy. And that's not what God's designed you to be. Find out what God's designed you to be. And where your wife is strong, let her be strong. And let yourself be weak. And trust her with that part of your heart. And you'll see your relationship grow. Amen.